1: All right. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Meredith Bell and Luke Wild at Abbey Road Farm. It's August 14th, 2020. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Uh, first question for each of you and the most important question for our purposes today is, why wine?
2: You want to start? Go for it. Why wine? Well, well, one, why not? But more like for me, the really cool thing I've have always enjoyed about wine and that really drew me to it is that it's this intersection of so many fields Um, my background is in chemistry so my brain appreciates and understands science Um, and so wine brings in science it brings in art it brings in agriculture it brings in technology it brings in history and place and nature and there are very few fields that combine all of these different things into one space and so for me that was really the the intrigue um, initially into wine and part of why i think i'm still here
3: i got into it um i have a background in theater and event planning and i got into it after the last recession when uh as a career anyway instead of just drinking it um because I kind of realized as I lost my career in TV production to a pandemic or not a pandemic, to a recession that I wanted something that was a little bit more kind of material. And I, you know, speaking to Meredith's point about the sort of like intersection of lots of things, I saw wine as being this, this thing that like it kind of doesn't matter at what stage any economy or government, or anything's like. You know, Wine seems to be one of those things that's thrived for thousands of years, and it is a part of, of how we celebrate, and it's a part of how we come together, and how we mourn, and, and it's, it's really a part of the kind of human existence at this point, point. and I wanted something after I lost one career that I thought could be a little bit more kind of like rooted in, in reality. Um, and yeah, that's kind of how I fell into it.
2: And we're kind of seeing that now in the pandemic, right? Like, yeah. like, certainly things are a lot different in the wine industry, but people are drinking wine. Yeah. <laughs> even in like really, really tough times. And even when the world seems to be falling apart, yeah. like wine still matters. Anecdotally,
3: um, we have seen during this pandemic, and I'm sure we'll get back into this, but we've seen, you know, wine sales be actually quite good mm-hmm. um, and And yeah, I think we should touch into this a little bit more, but it is just kind of part of something that people are still making space for. Um, Even when people struggle, I think, you know, often you kind of want to have a glass of wine or a bottle at the end of a really shitty day.
2: Yeah. And certainly, like, the farming component of wine is never going away. Like, no. it doesn't matter what's going on in the globe. It doesn't matter what's going on in politics. Like, those grapes are going to keep ripening and growing, and the cycle of growth will continue season after season, regardless of what's happening. For sure. doesn't mean that we will have ac- the ability to farm them, but, like, they will keep doing their thing regardless. Um, yeah. And so there's, uh, I don't know about stability, but consistency in, you know, in the natural cycles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: So tell me, as you each decided to join the industry and got intrigued by it, what what kind of drew you in at first and what was kind of your first step into the industry?
2: For me, so like I said, I have a background in chemistry, Um, studied chemistry in undergrad, didn't really know what I wanted to do other than not medical school, which is what everyone else that I was going to school with did, Um, and I actually joined the Peace Corps after college and lived in Mauritania, which is in West Africa, and it's an Islamic Republic. Uh, where alcohol is illegal, and it was there that I, you know, I had drank college and or I had drank al- wine in college and really liked it, but never thought of it as this like serious thing in my life. <laughs> but as soon as I was in a place where it was completely eliminated, like you have access to zero wine, I really missed it, and I was kind yeah. of surprised by how much I missed it. And and it was there that I kind of went, you know, maybe I should like think more seriously about this. Um, and so I did and I started doing research and I went like oh I can like go to school and study this and I liked school and so um, that's kind of how it happened for me it was like this thing that was a hobby that was totally taken away from me and then uh, yeah kind of realized the importance it had um, and then this light went off where like oh I I could actually use my education and experience and apply it to this thing that I had never even considered about as a career and so then ended up going to Davis and studying wine. Um, and well, I, I worked at Harvest First just to like, of course make, <laughs> make sure that this was a good thing. But ultimately we decided like, if I'm gonna do this, I wanna go to school and like learn what school has to say about this. Um, and yeah, so that's kinda how I got into it and then uh, I also um, so I grew up here just outside of Portland um, and as a teenager wanted to get the hell out of here I was like I need sunshine and diversity in my life and like, Oregon has neither of these things so I went to Los Angeles where I found both of those things and then lived abroad and whatever and it had been about ten years um, living in California and in Mauritania and ended up doing harvest in France and Australia and you know living around the world um, and part of the attraction to wine at that point in my life was like, I think I'm ready to go home now. I actually really miss Oregon. You know, my family's here, and I miss it, and I have had my experience of uh, sunshine and diversity, and of course, we' have a little bit more of those now, not as much of either as <laughs> I would like. Um, but wanted to come home, and like obviously so much about wine is place, and this is my place, you know, my family's here um, from here, uh, and so. That was part of what brought me back to Oregon. Um, yeah.
1: Before I get to you, Luke, I have a quick follow-up yeah. you on, on the, as you did that first harvest and yeah. decided to go to Davis, did you have an idea, was production going to be something you wanted to do, or did you kind of have an idea where you wanted to be in the industry
2: yet? Yeah, I mean, production is where I saw the like chemistry piece working. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so, and so actually I found these retired biochemists um, in Elkton, Oregon, which is a small town in the Umpqua Valley. Um, randomly long different story that is kind of irrelevant. But, um, and so I worked for retired chemists and you know, we, it was a little tiny winery so I got to do everything. And so it was actually kind of this perfect place for me to be introduced to like the production of wine. Um, both from a chemist standpoint and in a place where I could do everything as opposed to a large winery where you get like stuck at the press all harvest and you don't actually do all of the, you don't see the whole process. Um, and then at Davis, you know, they now they have different programs, but when I went to school in 2010, it was like one viticulture and master's program um, and the focus is certainly on production.
3: Yeah.
1: What really, you, as you kind of decided to get What was kind
3: of the initial attraction? Um, It was initially, like, also in college, I kind of stumbled into wine as, like, an alternative to the very, like, machismo keg stand kind of frat party vibe. I was actually at a frat party where I tried my first kind of interesting glass of wine that I thought was interesting. And It was like uh, specifically avoiding like being around a bunch of guys doing keg stands that I just was like (laughs) I don't want any part of this and I saw um, anecdotally like a bunch of girls around a table where there was like bottles of wine and I was like I mean that seems like an obvious choice (laughs) and I like tried to bottle of, like a sip of wine there. Didn't actually end up talking to girls because the wine was so much more appealing to me in that kind of moment. And and you know from there, I I had to work all through college, just like Meredith did. We both I think worked just about full time all the way through school. I also went to school in Los Angeles. Um, Meredith went to UCLA. I went to Loyola Marymount University, and um, we didn't know each other then. No. Um, and I then I did everything that I could to take jobs while I was in college that had something to do where I would be, have access to wine, even before I was 21, and going to a Catholic university uh, with the Jesuits. The Jesuits have quite the reputation for drinking on the job, because um, they're always working. And they, and they have expensive tastes. So I got access to a lot of really cool wine through these priests that I otherwise don't think I would have had access to as a college kid. And um, immediately after college, before I got a job in the entertainment industry, I actually, my first job that I, I landed was working for Gallo. I worked for their distribution company in L.A., um, selling all to the Fred Meyer equivalent in Los Angeles Ralph's and i was like a gallo sales rep which now seems like a lifetime ago and <laughs> holy holy cow i can't imagine you know having a job where i have to like sell bartles and james and like livingston Cellars or carla rossi five liter jugs again but that was my job i mean it taught me a lot about sales it like taught me a lot about sales um and I don't think that the, like, the bug to become, to go into production actually happened until, again, that recession happened. I lost my job in TV. I was unemployed for nine months, and the first job I got was working in a wine section at a Whole Foods in Venice Beach. And I stayed in that job for just about a year before I realized that I was like, kind of full of shit. Like, it didn't matter how many books I read, it didn't matter you know, how many W set levels I could climb. If I never actually got my hands dirty and touched grapes during a harvest, I wouldn't have any real context for what making wine really looked like. And, and that's kind of what led for me to go towards that production route. And say, like, I asked my boss one day, like, hey, do you know any winemakers in the world that might want to hire, like, a greenhorn for a harvest? And he was like, yeah, actually, and he came back from his lunch break, and I had an internship lined up in New Zealand and one in the Willamette Valley, and that was in 2011.
1: So both of you had, early on, abroad wine experiences, or experiences you Tell me about the, kind of the value of that to, to you as you were kind of developing your wine careers, and, and what made you eventually want to be back in the States versus staying and working abroad?
3: I tried to. I actually tried very hard when I worked in Margaret River and in, in Western Australia. I tried very hard to stay there. I had no real interest in leaving. I did everything I could to try to get a full-time job and move there permanently. And the, it ultimately came down to getting a visa and getting sponsored and and having that become a reality. And so it it really kind of pushed me to go do harvests elsewhere in Germany and a little bit in France and Burgundy, not really like a full one there. But I, you know, when I was in Germany, I, I started looking at jobs back in Oregon cause I'd already worked the harvest here. And I'm from Arizona. I didn't really want to go work for Maynard in Arizona. And that wasn't really a thing for me. And my sister had moved to Oregon. So it, it felt like coming back home you know, to the United States and moving to Oregon where my sister and I could be close to each other and kind of make a family unit happen in this state seemed like a really good fit. And so, yeah, I moved, moved here permanently at the end of really the start of 2013 and got kind of started looking for, looking for work.
2: For me, I mean, much of the appeal to traveling abroad was just being a young person and wanting to travel in general. And like, that was actually part of the appeal of the wine industry is like, oh, I can actually work rather than be a tourist because I don't have that kind of money. And so, I mean, part of it was just to travel and see the world, of course. Um, And then the other part is to just like, you know, learn about wine from as many different people as possible um, and in different areas and climates. And, you know, uh, and for me, uh, I actually worked in Burgundy Uh, I thought I was going to go there and like learn about Pinot Noir because I knew I was going to come home to my, you know, native Oregon. Um, And it was actually there that I really started to love Chardonnay. That's, I I honestly, I, because I didn't come to the industry from restaurants, I'd never really had access to proper white burgundies. I just always been a poor college student, you know, like all 25 year olds um, or most. And, and so I actually had access because I would go, you know, while working harvest, I probably talked to, 50 or 100 winemakers every weekend and every, you know, like traveling and talking to different winemakers and doing uh, cellar visits as much as possible. And I actually think I learned probably more that way than I actually learned during my harvest. And just, you know, like anybody learning, um, you talk to people that you respect and ask them all the questions you can think of and have a conversation. Um... But yeah, it was there actually that I was like, "Oh shit, Chardonnay is way more exciting than Pinot Noir for me." Um, and actually, for me, what like was the impetus first to Terra. I of course didn't know it at the time, but when, and we'll get to that in the story. But when it came time, like for me, that was where it kind of started. And that wouldn't have happened if I didn't have access to to traveling to Burgundy and like having real access to white Burgundy. Um, and so. Just like most things, you don't actually know the value of them until probably years later. Mm. Um, but it, you know, but they're of course that's really important to go live in different cultures and speak different languages, um, and then and just learn about wine in the context of different cultures. And of course, you know, uh, in the context of Burgundy, there's so much history to um, learn about and participate in and um, celebrate that doesn't exist here. And so that's you know there's there's nothing like there's no equivalent to that that you can get in the united states um and so i feel really like fortunate that i had the ability and privilege to have access to that kind of um space Uh, and it certainly has had a big impact on my life in a positive way
3: i always thought it was really interesting that when you went to Mauritania, you learned french and that like what an odd country to learn French in. And then that like directly impacted your ability <laughs> to sure. go and work in Burgundy. And it gave you so much more of like a broader experience in Burgundy than you would have had had you not done the Peace Corps first. Because I spoke the French. language. Because you spoke the language. And that's part
2: of and why I had access to work there because I could actually speak the language. Yeah, for sure. And so I could work anywhere rather than have to find an English speaking winemaker.
3: Yeah. Um,
2: yes, and it freaked the French people out because I'd opened my mouth and they're like, you. And I'm like I'm American and they're like you don't and I'm like do I sound African and they're like yes but you're not African <laughs> but my accent because that's where I like you know I took French in high school whatever but I learned to speak French in Mauritania um, and it's a very different accent than than is spoken in France um, it actually like to me has a heavy American accent Like, you don't roll your R's and you don't that doesn't have the guttural feel of it like true French does and so it's really actually easier to speak like Mauritanian version of French um, that totally freaked the French people out when I first got there, which is really fun, of course. <laughs> yeah.
1: So at what point in the story, you're both, you're both coming back to Oregon, coming back to Oregon, coming yep. to Oregon, uh, and you have had your harvest experience here, uh, and, and this is where you want to be, so tell me, at what point in the story do you two meet? Uh, tell me about that and me about the sort of formation of Satira from that.
2: So we met in the fall of 2013. Um, I worked a harvest at Shehalem. Um, And that's where I
3: had worked in 2011.
2: Yeah, that's where he had worked in 2011. I had known Wynne, because she is also a Davis alum. Um, I wanted to work for a woman winemaker. Um, That was really important to me. I hadn't in my career yet, and I really wanted to. Um, And so so worked at Shehalem. Uh, And Luke's partner at the time, Was also working at Shehalem and he was living with her at the Shehalem like intern house.
3: Yeah we were they have this like 110 plus year old craftsman house in the middle of that Corral Creek Vineyard there and when my partner and I moved because we had been just working a harvest in Mosul and when we moved from Germany back to the United States I like hit up Winn and Harry and I was like hey do you guys need a caretakers for this house to live there year-round and like make it a lived in home and clean it and take care of it. And they gave us that opportunity and it, it's, it really kind of is without that, I don't know if you and I would have really met otherwise.
2: Probably yeah. eventually at this point, but yeah. not, yeah. Not like, but in a different way.
3: Because I, I was like working for Anna Mee in the tasting room at the time and didn't really have a harvest gig that year. I was like looking desperately for production work but I, like, signed up to cook harvest lunches for the Shahalam crew. And I think based on that, I, like, had an opportunity to, like, hang out with Meredith more and, like, go to the, like, that evening drinking parties where everybody was kind of hanging out. And, yeah.
2: And then, like, uh, Jesse is the his ex-partner and good friend and still is actually one of both of our best friends. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and then, so we made friends. And so I'm friends with her. And so then by proxy, then, now we're hanging out more. And so it just, you know natural friendship, normal, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Muppets. Muppets.
3: <laughs> yeah. We also have like, uh, there's also like our kind of general community outside of wine is, is like a large kind of burning man camp. And I think that sort of like weird, goofy human aspect brought us together as well, mm-hmm. that it was like, Oh, I know that like, you kind of like vibe with the same kind of
2: we have other interests shared interests. Other shared interests
3: (laughs) other than just making wine.
2: Another shared community.
3: Yeah, another shared community. And I think it's, you know, that really enriches so your like relationship with somebody or your experience. If you have something other than just the business or -hmm. other than just your careers or just your like wine thing. Like find other things that really like make that uh a broader better experience and yeah I mean as a result of that I think we we kind of initially I think it was like literally at a party we were like drinking wine and we started talking I was like I moved here to make Riesling but I don't want to do that anymore because there's like Teutonic and Ovum and Brooks and trisatum that are these very like Riesling heavy and I was like I really want to start something we started kind of like spitballing. And yeah. I think it was in that moment where we were like, oh, we should like do this together because it'd be easier than doing it alone. And it, um, we landed on Chardonnay because like nobody else had at that point done like an all Chardonnay label. And I literally like Googled one day, like how to make yourself known as a company. <laughs> and it was like, And it was like, become the first at something. And I was like, well, nobody else has done all Chardonnay. What if we did that? And so yeah, it's literally like, a stupid Google search is kind of led to picking Chardonnay
2: and we had decided so for me at that point I like after that harvest I had been like trying for months before to try to find a full-time job and finding full-time production production jobs especially your first one at least in Oregon is really hard like there are few and far between especially if you want to work for someone where you really like the wine I don't like all of the wine I like some of the wine and I don't want to just make wine that I don't care about I want to make wine that I am proud of and that I want to drink and I want to like learn from white. I want to learn from those winemakers like I'm not just your employee I'm here to learn how to do this myself long term and so it was like I was feeling really discouraged um i actually didn't expect it to be that hard i was like i have a master's degree and all this experience and like nobody gives a shit <laughs> yeah um and so so and so then part of that was like well then i just have to do my own thing if i can't find someone to hire me to do what i want to do then i just have to create it and yeah. like take a ballsy move and use my little bit of savings and like make two barrels of wine and so like you know we're having these conversations and and so we kind of just went like you know what we could be stronger as a team like luke has both experience and the personality um, for sales like you really do Um, and i have this like formal education in production and so we felt like those are obviously like two very different components of owning a wine brand and label And to me, I was like, sweet, I can just make wine and he can sell it. This is like the sweetest deal ever. And he's like, sure, I'll I'll sell the wine. Like, of course, like totally just like happy to do it. And so it felt like a really good partnership that we had different skills um, to add. And it actually has worked out really well in that way. Like actually better than.
3: Oh, for sure. I can't imagine my own.
2: No, it's so much work. Any small business. I mean,
3: I cannot imagine. In any industry. like, Like we don't have staff. We don't have, it's literally just the two of us. Yep. We do 100% of everything for this and we have gradually grown. We've never had investors. We've never taken out loans. We've never done any of that. But I, I mean, I, to add to your point, like when I moved here, I was like, I'm just coming off like two solid years of traveling around the world, doing nothing but working for other just dope wineries, like literally some amazing wineries. And I got to Oregon and it's like, sorry, bro, you don't have a master's degree. Like, what are you going to, what are you going to do? They don't care about the
2: master's degree. Yeah,
3: I found, <laughs> But I found, yeah. yeah. It's just, they're
2: really, they're few and far between. Very few and far, and so.
3: especially for a winery that you want to work for, yeah. that you really want to work with. That's, I mean, that's really tough. Talk to any winemaker. Yep. try to get them to admit how many wineries they actually love drinking the wine from. Yeah. I bet it's very few, it's, I bet it's yeah. very few. Mm-hmm. But I mean, that, I mean, that's, that would be the same thing for chefs too, right? Like. Chefs don't love every restaurant in Portland. Just because you're a chef in Portland doesn't mean you're like, oh, I love every, it doesn't matter, I love it all. Like, that's just not the way it works. Yeah. Um, yeah, we, we really, like, got, I think, very lucky in meeting one another and establishing this sort of, like, business relationship. Um, because it's, it just makes things, it just makes things like, you always have a sounding board, you always have somebody that you can like trust to say like is this a good decision is are we should we grow should we shrink like we've had years where we've been like let's grow we've also had years where we're like let's make a little less this year mm-hmm. and you know just sharing
2: the workload it's a lot of work to make even a small amount of wine and sell it and compliance and all the things and so just sharing the workload yeah. is yeah
3: and things have shifted for us too like where we initially started off where it was like i was doing more sales and meredith was doing more winemaking we've kind of like reversed those roles now because mm-hmm. i'm here and we're making we're at abbey road and we're like making all the wines here it's like the day-to-day kind of maintenance of the winemaking has fallen on to me now and meredith does more of the like more of the kind of like wine deliveries and local wine sales and yeah. um and it's it's been interesting to see how the how the business has changed and grown as we have also changed and grown together and and our families are growing and
2: And that's part of my, why it's worked I think for us. It's, it's it's always been 50/50. It's always felt like that. And just like in any relationship, it doesn't mean that in any given moment you're each giving 50%, but it's always been that like the responsibility is shared and we're both responsible for everything regardless mm-hmm. of who's leading what at any given moment. Um and Oh, it makes it so much easier to share it and it to really like. It really does. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: So you have a you have a plan based on a Google search about <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious about as you as you as you launch.
2: Brilliant <laughs>
3: business. <laughs> how, do, how, do I do the- how to business. <laughs> <laughs> how
1: how did that translate as you are the first. Writer? Was there a market immediately? Did people, were people excited about this idea? Or did you have to kind of knock down some doors? How, how did those kind of initial roll
3: out? I think like Chardonnay is one of, just like Riesling, Chardonnay is one of those grapes that every winemaker in the world is like, like obsessed with and loves it. And it is a very difficult, very difficult wine to sell. like unless it's Unless you can sell a bottle of, you know, like excellent Chardonnay for, for 20 bucks, trying to get somebody to pay attention to a single vineyard Chardonnay, if you don't own a tasting room, because I think a tasting room certainly makes things quite a lot easier. Um, and it's, just, it's just hard. Like, I don't know what it is about that grape. I think its reputation uh, largely based on kind of what California did to it. Has just like really suffered at the hands of you know like heavy heavily new oaked and like big bomb type chardonnays um, you know not that there's like necessarily anything wrong with that style of chardonnay but it, it certainly has changed the sort of general zeitgeist of of how people approach it right um, yeah I chardonnay even now like we're in we're six years into this and i mean we're selling more of our wines now than we ever have before and faster like we release stuff and it's selling out faster than it ever has before but it's still quite a lot of work i mean it's not like if you were to release i mean like anecdotally if you were to release like meredith has this for her label this awesome uh sauvignon blanc pet nat and it's like, it literally gets released, and I think it's probably gone in two weeks.
2: Right away. Yeah. Like,
3: right away. It just disappears. And you do that with Chardonnay, and good luck. You know, it's just good luck. Except Chardonnay Pet People love, again, it's a $20, $23 bottle of sparkling wine. Who's not going to like that? Um, But yeah, I don't know, do you have anything to add about like how Chardonnay is for
2: Um, I feel like it's both. I mean, obviously everyone has heard of Chardonnay and knows it and it's really polarizing. Oftentimes when people taste Chardonnay with us, it's like, oh I love Chardonnay, or oh I hate Chardonnay, but like, oh this is kinda good you get once in a while, which is a nice compliment, I think, for somebody to say, like, oh I don't like any Chardonnay, but I like yours and you're like, this tastes like classic Chardonnay, y'all, like I don't know what I don't know what Chardonnay you're drinking. (laughs) Yeah. But um like it's
3: literally just Chardonnay.
2: I mean, so it's both. I mean, it's all at the price level we're at, it's all hand sell stuff. And so you, like, I'm amazed at how many people look at us like, holy shit, this is amazing. Thank you. And how many people just go like, mm-hmm, whatever. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm sure everyone experiences that everywhere. It's a big world. Yeah. Um, and there certainly has been like the, the ABC, like anything but Chardonnay push. Um, and I think people are coming back from that a little bit and I, there are now these days with the natural wine movement, people want like weird grapes they've never heard of and Chardonnay is not that they've heard of Chardonnay. Um, and, and so finding our space kind of in that natural wine world. Um, and so I don't know, it's both, I feel like it's both really easy and really hard.
3: Yeah. (laughs) As we've discovered, you know, we used to, when we first started, we worked with our first year, we worked with uh what three single vineyards mm-hmm. three single vineyards and we just released three single vineyard chardonnays mm-hmm. and it was like 50 cases of johan 50 cases of belpont and 50 cases of anderson family vineyard and it wasn't belpont that first no it year. was craw creek it was craw creek yep. um, and so we like released three single vineyard wines and for us, we were like, "Wow, this is this is sick!" Like, you put three single vineyard Chardonnays out on a table, and you're like, "These were literally all made the exact same way. They spent the same amount of time in neutral oak. All the barrels are of the same sort of neutral quality." Uh, we were like, "This is such a great case study." And they're all different Oregon wines. Chardonnay. They taste way yeah. different from one another, and it's just because of the vineyards, the like mesoclimate kind of surrounding those vineyards. And now we've had to really back off from making single vineyard wines because they are always the hardest to sell for us for one reason or another. It's crazy, right? Like you shake your head like, why is that the hard thing to sell? (laughs) Why? That should be the thing that people care about. But if we release like a $20 bottle of blended Chardonnay of like all the vineyards, then people eat it up and we can't make enough of it. If we make Chardonnay as like a pet gnat, we literally cannot make enough of it. We make 75 cases, and this year, we, I think we made 75-ish cases, and it was gone in, what, like, three or four weeks? Yep. So, and I mean, that's, whereas, like, our single vineyard stuff doesn't really languish, but it is way harder for us to say, like, this is Lower. really special. Like, you guys should pay attention to this. They're all, like, single clone, single vineyard really beautiful looks at what the kind of history of Oregon Chardonnay has looked like and yeah that single vineyard stuff is still a tough sell but it's still it's still my favorite thing to make and drink like when you get when you get it right it's just it's good
2: it's definitely our most serious wine but what we're learning is people don't give a shit about serious wine Yeah, (laughs) not our customers anyway I mean you find those people but more people at least right now, feel like they want fun wine yeah. as opposed to serious wine. And when we started, we we're like, we're gonna make the highest quality, serious, like, I'm, we're not messing around. Like, the point of this is for us to make the best wine we can. And what we've learned is apparently, or we're just not have the marketing skills to find those people. I know they're out there in the universe. I just don't know how a little tiny brand like us finds them. And so what we have found though, is people that like fun wines, but that's the beauty of Chardonnay. And when we started this is Chardonnay can do both of those things. Mm -hmm. It shows place really well and it really shows style. And so you can have all this diversity within one grape and like most grapes don't have that breadth. And that was part of the, uh, the strategy behind like, okay, we can actually make a brand and a story around one grape because it is one of those few grapes that can do that, and so it's actually been fun to explore both oh, yeah. sides. Like we've been exploring the like winemaking aspect um, as opposed to the like terroir celebration, which we uh, still do aspect, which still we still do, do. Terroir, yeah, yeah.
3: I think you know. Also, we kind of landed on this point at at, at some time and somewhere in the timeline where we were like, gosh, like. A lot of our friends can't afford the wine that we're making at like $35 a bottle. How many of our friends are spending $35, you know, a, bo- a bottle for like the stuff that they just want to drink at home? And that sort of like economic disconnect became more and more apparent to us as like we're seeing a, a larger and larger kind of like wealth disparity gap. And we kind of felt like, okay, maybe we need to revisit some of this a little bit and do release some wines that our friends can like easily afford. And, and I think this, this really touches on how the like, sort of like ethos and the ethics of how we're approaching this business are shifting and are, are growing into something that makes us feel more and more like, we're paying attention to not just like this concept that we have but how does this concept apply to our values and how we live in our communities and there's something like that felt really weird for for me to like realize that when my friends would come and taste they're like i can't afford this like that doesn't feel good you know like how does that fit into what's the point of making it if your people can't even drink it
2: yeah. yeah, so it's evolved, yeah, <laughs> of course, time. and it will continue to evolve. Oh, yeah. Like, everything. <laughs> yeah.
1: Was there a certain, a certain Chardonnay you had, or a certain reason, or a certain style that you really wanted to emulate? I mean, you talk about showcasing single vineyards here in Oregon, so clearly the vineyard plays a large role, but you also talk about kind of not doing California-style, like, oaky, buttery Chardonnay. So, was there a certain style you were aiming for at the start, um, like, the a perfect Chardonnay for each of you, or for both of you together, that you were kind of aiming for?
2: I mean, for me, my favorite Chardonnays in the world come from from Chablis and Jura. And I knew that I would never create wine like that in Oregon. Like, we yeah. just don't have the, we don't have any limestone and we're not Jura and we're not, you know, I I obviously knew that that wasn't possible, but in, in living in Burgundy and I traveled to both of those regions and talking to people and what, and kind of what they do and how they make wine. And most people were like, I just put juice in a barrel and then like, that's it. And so that very much influenced like mm-hmm. how, I personally stylistically wanted to come at Chardonnay, was feeling inspired by the people making single vineyard Chardonnays. Um, I mean, yeah. Chigli is really my, like, would be my oh, favorite God. Chardonnays, but I mean, there's there's literally no way to emulate that. Um, yeah,
3: kind of take umbrage when people are like, oh, we're on the 45th parallel. We're like, Burgundian-esque, and I'm like, no, we're not. Like, yeah. we could not be in a different weather climate than Burgundy. We literally, like, nothing about Oregon is at all like the way that Burgundy's weather is. There's just nothing about it. And the the soils. soils are different. Yeah. The weather's different. Our even the length of our growing season is quite a bit different. Just because you're on the 45th parallel doesn't mean that the jet stream isn't affecting what weather's coming through at different times. And it's like you also have to talk about vine age you know we don't have vineyards that are you know storied have the provenance of having like a couple hundred years of making Chablis in the same site so i've never wanted to say like we're making this style like, we're making this style we're making that style one of the reasons that we picked the kind of weird bottle shape that we did initially was because we didn't want the wines to be like to be in a lineup of other wines and be like oh, I know that burgundy bottle shape, that's got to be Chardonnay. Like, we wanted it to instantly be, like, to take your head out of that space and just say, what's in the bottle can speak for itself. We're not trying to compare it to anything else. And I think Oregon, I hear this more and more, that people are kind of, talking about Oregon's separation from Burgundy, because like we just, we aren't Burgundy. Why are we trying to compare ourselves? It's just a marketing thing,
2: that's why. In my opinion, like that is,
3: but it's like such a stupid marketing decision. (laughs)
2: That's what marketing is.
3: Right? It's like, (laughs) if you're trying to sell a Miata, and it's painted red, would you be like, it's colored like a Ferrari. Like, (laughs) that's a stupid way of selling a Miata. Like, nobody's gonna be fooled that you're buying a a red car. Somebody's gonna be like, that looks like a Ferrari. Like, never once, (laughs) never once has that ever happened for cars. Why are we trying to do it for wines?
2: So for us, I think. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, to bring it back to wine, um, what we in wanting to make terroir-driven wines, we wanted to be as neutral as possible with our hand in the cellar. I think mm-hmm. is like really for me, kind of where the inspiration came from. So it wasn't a style as much as it was like if we're going to make wines. That tastes like the vineyard. Then we need to keep our hands out of it, which is really hard. Especially as Americans, we are control freaks. <laughs> um, and so we had decided that, like, the most neutral winemaking we could do was to essentially press it and put it in neutral barrels and then do nothing else. And that is what we do. <laughs> yeah. Um, we have and a so, very
3: simple winemaking style.
2: Yep. Yep. It
3: seems it's like not lazy. It's just not hard.
2: Nope. And the ferments are really slow. They're like probably 12 months on average, which is amazing. And I actually have learned to really appreciate it. It yeah. terrified me when we, the first year we did it. Um,
3: we still have Chardonnay fermenting. Oh yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, From last year. And so, yeah. But so the idea was to be as neutral in our winemaking as possible. Um, in, in making terroir driven wines. And then more recently when we're playing with winemaking, it's of course the opposite. How can we be creative? How can we be playful? How can we show what our hands are doing in the glass? You know, um, how can we show what our like creativity and playfulness is doing in the glass? And we don't put the vineyard names on those bottles because it's not about the vineyard. Even if they are from a single vineyard, like we don't like that's no. not the point of that wine. That's not the story of that wine. The point of that wine is that it's like sparkly and delicious and cloudy and whatever. It's not not the vineyard. That's not the that's not what comes across in your glass. Um, but when we started, it was we want the vineyard to come across, and so we want to get the hell out of the way. Yeah.
1: So you mentioned uh, kind of sharing the load in terms of all things. So tell me about starting the label and actually choosing a name, choosing a label type, oh, excuse me, label type, model type, uh, and, and kind of all the things you have to do up front to, to actually logistically start a label.
2: Um, we are lucky enough to have friends that have other small labels and you go like, what do you do? Yeah. <laughs> Cause Google's not really going to help you. Like, no, what licenses do I need? That's, you know, um, and so it starts of course with getting your licenses and figuring out which licenses you need. Um, and then the naming and the branding is really hard. I mean, it's not hard to think of something you want. It's hard to think of something you want that's not already trademarked by someone else. And so just like popping ideas back and forth and going on the trademark Google search and going and like without a legal team behind us to go like, oh, well, that's a different industry. You know, like we're just winging it and we're on our own. Um, And so it was a pretty long, hard process to come up with the name.
3: Took a while to figure out something. that wasn't copyrighted. I mean, even with our names to we like did it and then... It wasn't long after that there we started seeing like some other businesses not wine related with that yeah. name And so Meredith had the wherewithal to be like, I'm just gonna file for a trademark for this thing, <laughs> And we it took a long time because I think we were like up against like a pharmaceutical company or something like that Like it took a long time and eventually they're like, yeah, you guys you guys were first so it it's it's tough to get a name right the first time. We didn't want to say like, this is the Lumair, you know, where people do like the sort of portmanteau of their names. We didn't want to do like our last names. We didn't want to do anything like that. Um, And Statera landed, I had taken Latin like all through grade school and all through high school. And I was like, Latin words are often not copyrighted. And also they're like, they don't, they just kind of live in another realm. And so, Statera is a Latin word that means balance, and it, it seemed like a good fit for what we're trying to achieve in our winemaking by like just putting juice in a barrel and then walking away and just kind of letting the wine find its own balance. That kind of fit it. And then Meredith had the great idea of including the chemistry symbol for equilibrium, which is those two arrows that's kind of like... like it's our logo. It. It's yeah. our logo. And it, I mean, I I think just it has like such a really nice kind of signature look about it. We picked the typeface because it's the same typeface that's on like the Latash bottles. (laughs) And we were like, which
2: nobody has known it. Nobody ever bought it. We were like, what's the most
3: expensive bottle of Chardonnay in the world? Latash. Cool. Cool, Let's use that typeface.
2: (laughs) Well, and we had a mutual friend who's a graphic designer, and you know, we went through the design process with him. But really, and obviously, if you've seen our packaging, it's very simple. Yeah. That's what we wanted. We didn't want this like, hipstery. I can't I mean like the winemaking is like simple and I don't know. Yeah. Um, but it's hard. I'm not like it's not my favorite part of this for we sure. We do
3: have like we each have our own solo labels and for those, those labels are like They're much more colorful different. and way different and the wines are not just Chardonnay based and the label artwork is quite a bit different and it's it's a, uh, like Statera is like such a simple focus with Chardonnay. It's so we easy. We wanted it to
2: be serious.
3: Very, yeah. And I, we literally said when we were starting, like we want our very first release and every release after that to compare to the best Chardonnays of Oregon. Just period, full stop. And I think that we've accomplished that. And like, we live in this realm where when people talk about Chardonnay in Oregon, like our names get brought up mm-hmm. and it's because we like have taken it quite seriously and it, I, I think it has also helped that we've never rushed a release. We keep things in barrel or in bottle until the wine's actually ready. And we, um, our very first year that we made wine in 2014, we made that wine and then come harvest of 2015, the wines are still pretty much fermenting in barrel and we're like, shit, we don't have any money left <laughs> to make sell this wine. year. We didn't sell any wine. We
2: need we to buy new barrels. We knew this was barrels. one possible outcome. We just didn't know if it would be the outcome.
3: Yeah, <laughs> we, we don't, we need to go buy new barrels now. Like, what are we gonna do? So we literally like, did a Kickstarter campaign and raised enough money to- Do our like, second harvest. To buy fruit and to bottle that first vintage. And then after that, like, that was the only kind of like, the only kind of financing that we've ever gotten was from our community Mm -hmm. and it was enough to push us over the edge and I I mean I I really think that it was an amazing opportunity for us I don't know that I would recommend everybody do that because it's it's like a lot of work it is a crazy amount of work running a successful crowdfunding campaign like it was also pretty fun though yeah, it was. Yeah. Well, I mean, we have a lot of fun anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of We're goofy humans and yeah. whatever we have. <laughs> oh, wait, wait till y'all see this photo shoot we just did. <laughs> Holy cowboys. This thing was wild. <laughs> it's really good.
2: Yeah. We're updating yeah. our website. Yeah, Something to look forward to. Very much Something so. Something to show our personalities a little more on our...
3: Yeah, because our website looked like the same like thing as Our labels really it was like, like white simple. and black and green, and then we were like, "But we're not like that. Like, just because you take your job seriously doesn't mean you have to take yourself seriously." And like, we're fun humans. We like to wear costumes and go out and dance with our friends. And why we should show that off? I think like people know that's who we are. I think that they'll appreciate the wines more if they know the goofy humans that they came from.
2: Yeah.
1: It is interesting. You that because I was thinking that as you're describing the labeling and the branding is, is very serious and mm-hmm. very, it's very kind of sober and simple and yet neither you are. So tell me about your, your personal brands brought up people each have each have other brands as well. So mayor yeah. you tell about your, your non-Statero Yeah
2: brand. so it is called Est. Um, it also started in 2014 the same year as Statera. Um, in my travels um, and experience um, really appreciating the like vigneron model of France um, and understanding that that's not the typical model in the United States but really if you just throw juice in a barrel like the wines made in the vineyard and of course like our our winemaking philosophy is trying to like celebrate the vineyard and so wanting to farm um, not knowing how not having family really in the industry not having capital behind me I never knew how but had like set it out as an intention and a goal. Um, and was given the great, great fortune to be introduced to this lovely man, Bruce Weber, um, who is a family friend of my aunt and uncle. They met at community college before I was born because they were both building solar homes in the late 70s, and they both had small vineyards. Uh, My aunt and uncle had a little three-acre vineyard out in Beaver Creek, which is like, I don't know, 20 minutes from where I grew up. Um, And Bruce planted a vineyard a couple years before I was born in Oregon City, which is also, I don't know, 10 miles from where I grew up. Um, This is a suburb of Portland. Uh, And Bruce uh, does not have children. And he is now almost 80 years old, and so several years ago, he uh, realized, like, I have to figure out what I'm going to do with my vineyard because eventually I won't be able to farm it. And um, and so my aunt and uncle, being some of their some of his best friends, were like, I have someone you should introduce. I want to introduce you to because I, you know, in talking to my family, had you know they know about my journey and what I want to do and whatever. Um, And so met Bruce and. We immediately became friends. He to this day is one of my best friends. I love the man dearly. Um, And so for the past six years we have been, he has basically been my mentor. Um, Now I feel like we're more co-farming but for the first couple of years it was just me learning what he does. And he has a little four acre vineyard um, like I said in Oregon City Um, and it's mostly Pinot Noir and there's a single row of Sauvignon Blanc. Um, And so I have been making wine from that vineyard that I have been helped that have been farming, um, and that label is called Est. Um, Est refers to, it's the French word for east. Oregon City is on the eastern side of the Willamette Valley. Most of the like, sub-AVA's and what we think of as the Willamette Valley is on the western side of the valley. Um, it is definitely in the Willamette Valley AVA, but it's way outside of what we think of as wine country. Um, it's, there is Jory soils, which is just, like the volcanic soils that the Dundee Hills are known for. And it makes like really incredible wine, which awesome. I just got super lucky that I found this incredible farmer that has this like beautiful vineyard that, you know, that now we work together. Um, and so that's what Est is. It's, that, it's all fruit from that little, from that little vineyard that I now co-farm with Bruce. Um, and eventually when he's not able to farm it, I'll take over the farming full time. And when he's not there anymore, then my family will live out there. And Bruce built this solar home that he, that's out there on, his, on the vineyard. Um, and so that's will, where my family will be long-term, which is pretty cool.
3: You say lucky, but I feel like your dedication and education and the, everything about what you've done, has like guided you, led you to this place where he would also have the confidence. It wasn't just luck that he was like, well, I guess I gotta give it to this girl. You know, it was like, (laughs) there's so many more factors about it. Like you literally presented the best kind of package. And you know, there's something about him never having children and your having children that shows him that this is going to be a home where like a full family is going to live mm-hmm. and i think there's something about that that really resonates with him i love bruce too he's just like what a human being
2: oh he's just a magical what human a
3: crazy he's a beautiful amazing human being
2: yeah he's so as a mentor like i he is incredible he's you guys really yeah he's really meticulous so he is a woodworker, he built his whole home, he built most of the furniture in his home. Right now in the winter, because he has to always be working, he doesn't watch TV and he doesn't read books. He, does, he works, he does projects, even when he's now almost 80, he, he works. He's building a cello but he's first, I'm sorry, he's building a violin as practice for when he builds his cello. So he is like a meticulous person. And because this vineyard is only four acres, like that's a pretty small vineyard in the world of vineyards. And so the farming is meticulous. And so it's really incredible to learn from a person that works with that level of detail and has that level of integrity in their work. Um, And so, I mean, to me, it's both, like, it, it's a lot of luck, and it's a lot of, like, my work and intention in, right. in the world, um, but he is an incredible mentor, and we, like, I love nothing more than, like, work in a row next to him, and we talk about philosophy and politics and life and science, and, like, we're, like, just naturally, like, very good friends. He's, we're very like-minded in a lot of ways, um, and so, so it's amazing. I love it out there, and, you know, there's this massive vegetable garden, there's a small orchard, half of the property is forested and bruce planted most of these trees that are now you know 40 years old and he thins out the blackberries and he thins out the trees and so it looks like an old growth forest and it's just this magical property Um, and the wine that comes from the grapes is incredible it really is and i think it is much to do with his focus and his level of integrity in the work that he does i think it really shows in the fruit or that's all I can figure anyways um, <laughs> but you, it really does make you uh, started
3: off making like a single vineyard Pinot Noir from mm-hmm. that site and also you had the great idea of making a Sauvignon Blanc Petnat mm-hmm. and that was my introduction to Petnat actually like mm-hmm. you introduced me to it and I was like holy shit why don't we make why doesn't we should do this all the time <laughs> like this is so easy
2: else.
3: yeah
1: so
2: yeah you had a single row of Sauvignon Blanc so the rest of the fruit Bruce's has been selling to Erath since 1987 and they make a single vineyard bottling out of it and for him that's a great honor to have a well-regarded pioneering brand put his little tiny vineyard into a single vineyard bottling and so that's where most of his fruit goes and of course now I've been siphoning it off and they don't like that because they love this <laughs> but not
3: much I mean you, you I make, make a make little like... bit
2: although this year the crop is really low and anyways and so but that's where his fruit has historically gone um I think that he literally met Dickie Rath at the you know state fair in his first year, and Dick was like, "I love it, I'll take it," and has been buying it. And you know, <laughs> it's not Dickie Rath anymore, but anyways, E. Rath. Um, but so there's a single row of Sauvignon Blanc that he doesn't, and he's he also like has this little winery, and he's done some like home winemaking stuff, and he was always like the problem with the Sauvignon Blanc is that the acid like maybe never gets low enough by the time the rain comes. And I was like, Oh, well you have too much acid. Then we just make sparkling wine. Like it wasn't even a like deep thought. It wasn't the super creative thing. It was just like, Oh, you have too much acid. You make sparkling wine. And so even our first year. Yeah. So we actually at this time, uh, Luke and his now wife and myself and my now husband, were all living in the same house and it's like one row makes 30 gallons. I mean, it makes nothing. And Bruce was like, I'll split it with you. And so I got, you know, 15 gallons. And so I, it wasn't this commercial endeavor. And so we made it in our closet in our, our coat house. Closet. Yeah.
3: She like ran an extension core, this little space heater in the <laughs> coat closet, and just like fermented some carboys in there, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it was
2: just like for me for fun. Like, I, you know, it's not on the books anywhere. I'm not intending to sell it. And every person I shared a bottle with was like, holy shit, this is amazing, how can yeah. I buy this? And I went like, god damn it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> now what? Now I have
2: to sell this shit next year. Yeah. <laughs> Not god damn it, but just like, there's one row, I will only ever make 20 cases of this wine, 30 cases. Um,
3: Unless you graft some rows over it. <clears>
2: yeah, yeah, we grafted one other end row that was Syrah that's now. Um, but like, and of course, Bruce hates that because he has a Pinot Noir vineyard, and like, how dare the Sauvignon Blanc be like? Where <laughs> worse,
3: now you're like more wish
2: celebrated, it was, <laughs> Wish
3: it was 50/50.
2: <laughs> yes, um, but it's not, and so, but so there's very little of it, um, and it easily is my easy like best-selling wine. So um, good, and it's delicious, yeah. You also um, make a
3: really compelling rosé off mm-hmm. that site now, utilizing the skins of that Sauvignon Blanc with the Pinot juice, which I think is just one of the coolest, coolest rosés in the Willamette Valley.
2: Yeah, I've been trying to get creative. <laughs> I mean, I have a bunch of Pinot Noir and a tiny bit of Sauvignon Blanc. And so uh, in the last couple of years, there's been this conversation around piquette, which is repurposing pumice, um, rehydrating it and re-fermenting it. Um, and I wasn't interested in that, but it got me going like, oh, okay, re- like repurposing pumice, like. That hadn't ac- actually really occurred to me. Um, and so I've repurposed the Sauvignon Blanc pumice. Um, and so basically ferment Pinot Noir juice on the the Sauvignon Blanc pumice, the press skins, um, to make a like phenolic Pinot Noir Sauvignon Blanc rose. It's really fun. Yeah. Yeah. It's good stuff. Mm-hmm.
1: And- Do you have other roles
2: in the wine industry as well? I do, yeah. Um, Luke and I still don't pay ourselves, so we both have income outside of Statera. Um, And so I, for the past, uh, since 2014, have been working with Craft Wine Company. Um, For several years, I was the assistant winemaker. um, And then more recently, am now uh, basically the consulting winemaker. Um, There was kind of a shift um, there and I had a shift in my personal life, namely that I have a child, um, and so I still am craft, but in a much different role than I than I have been um, in the past several years. Yeah.
1: And now for you, tell me about your personal label.
2: Uh, I have a label called
3: Laris and uh, again in the kind of like Latin realm of things for me, Laris were these like classification of little clay figurine gods that kind of represented your ancestors in ancient Roman culture they sat like above your kitchen sink or above your hearth and these gods were literally like meant to protect your home your hearth and your harvest and I saw that and was like that's that's for me Um, and I wanted to largely inspired by Meredith making this S label I kind of got to this point where I was like okay, making Chardonnay has been really fun. Selling it's been great. I'm seeing Meredith get to play, you know, with the grapes from the Est, uh, for the S label. I was like, I kinda wanna just do something on my own. And she actually encouraged me to a couple years ago. And she was like, why don't you just start your own label? I'm like, why don't you do something? And so I started off um, with this kind of concept of wanting to make wines with grapes that I was unfamiliar with working with so I could learn how to make different kinds of wine. or um trying to make things that were like like outside of convention like if you like taking something that's you know everybody has a relationship with and just working with it a little differently or making blends that you just wouldn't really think of ever doing like a few years ago i like blended albarino and pinot noir together you know not for larry for something else but I, i i have this sort of thought with this label that this is my opportunity to like be, it's like my sandbox. Like, I buy a bunch of grapes each year, and I often don't entirely plan on what kind of wines I'm gonna make for them. And I just say like, okay, yeah, I'm gonna get Gewurz from there, and Syrah from there, and what happens if you co those? Or I'm gonna get just a bunch of stuff that is different um, and see what happens. And, and that started in like 2017 for that label, And it's just been a riot, like I love it. Like I, if I have an idea, I start doing it. So like this summer I bought a bunch of cider juice and I made cider and I'm buying Gewurztraminer and I'm gonna co-ferment those and make a sparkling wine out of it. Or like last year I co-fermented free run Pinot Gris juice and whole cluster Alvarino and blended in Syrah and Chenin Blanc and made this sparkling wine that is now called Wicked Liquid and I like can't make enough of it. And I, it's just been a really good opportunity for me to like scratch that kind of creative itch. And also I wanted a wine label that was like a lot of fun. Like the actual labels themselves are a lot of fun. And I've always been inspired by the sort of like Dante's Inferno type wood etchings and stuff. These like really hellish kind of scenes of like, taking those images and then turning them into something, like, fun and bright and colorful. And, and yeah.
2: Natural progression?
3: <laughs> yeah. And, like, very similar to, like, what, like, like, those sort of multicolored, like, rainbow, like, velvet 80s metal posters would look like. I was like, that's, that's what I want. And so it gave me an opportunity to, like, play around with my kind of, like, graphic design chops. Because, like, I do all my own labels for that. Um, and that has just been a riot. And now that I'm here at Abbey Road Farm, I'm the associate winemaker here. Um, we moved production from craft into this winery since Meredith is like, I mean, raising kids is a lot of work and, um, and raising a child right yes. now. Yeah, and uh, still a
2: lot of work. Yeah, still a lot of
3: work. You know, and it, it's been an opportunity for me to put my head more into kind of like the cellar for Statera, and simultaneously put my head into uh, making my own wines. And it's been it's been great. Like I, I kind of don't know what I would do without that Larry's label because I just have so much fun with it, and it's been it's been wild. Prior to working here at Abbey Road Farm, I was the assistant winemaker for Division Winemaking Company in Portland. I was there for three years, and and that was really the kind of opportunity that I needed. Prior to that, I had never had a production winemaking job before. I was just like working in a tasting room or working at a restaurant selling wine. And Not
2: a full-time production job. You're not a full-time production harvest. job. Yeah, Many,
3: yeah lots yeah, of harvests, yeah. but definitely not what I really wanted, which is like that full-time show up to work wearing short shorts and black t-shirt. <laughs> And make, and, make, and make wine. Like, that's what I moved to Oregon to do. And I really can't thank Tom and Kate, you know, for giving me that opportunity initially. And that's how I met James, he's the winemaker here, the director of winemaking. And seeing me work at the collective, he was like, oh yeah, when Abbey Road Farm opens, I'm gonna take that guy and plug him in here. And it's been, I mean, it's been wild. I love it here so, so much. That's a lot,
1: gives you guys do a lot
2: yeah I, yeah we're
3: both like most people that
2: make wine do a lot that's normal and super busy humans. <laughs> like
3: we say this all the time to it's each agriculture. other like we oh, are so busy like <laughs> Meredith is raising a child and is like just does so much for Statera and is doing like like just managing like your life and farming and then I like I work a lot here and I'm also making labels and now I have like a couple clients who I make wine for and it's just like I mean Kate always Kate always said to me at Division like uh, like you gotta be busy to stay busy you know and I really like like the more you do the more you do right and I I really kind of liked that notion that not not to like work yourself to death like that's a terrible American way of looking at at life like it's a terrible way of looking at it but really like keep your mind busy like Bruce you know read read more like learn more the more the more that you're just kind of like doing and learning the more that your life is going to be enriched and the experiences that you're going to have are going to be reflective of how much you put into it
2: I will say in my opinion part of the only way that all of this is possible is because we have both had a lot of support, especially from our bosses. And so when I was at Kraft, uh, I was working with Chad Stock as the head winemaker and he very much supported me making my own thing in that facility. If we had not mm-hmm. to find another facility, and ma- which is how most people, they're like, you don't get to make your wine here. Like you're my employee and you work all the time. You do your own thing. After hours, which there's no such thing as after hours. If at all.
3: A lot of our friends have no compete clauses with the wineries they work for. They're not allowed to have their own label.
2: And so given that opportunity at Kraft, and he is given the same opportunity here at Abbey Road Farm to make his and our wines in the same space and in the same time is incredible and like this would not be possible without those kind of opportunities of of bosses and just other people like supporting us and of course i mean in any small business it takes a huge community of support to make anything happen but that to me is like a really big piece of this is having a work environment that supports us doing our own thing and in a huge way Um, because in both of those contexts, Statera and Laris and Est was just like built into Harvest. Like you don't do it after. Like there's no after during Harvest. It's all during. There's no after in a 20 hour day. And so to have the ability to just fold it in and make it work and to have a company that lets you do that is incredible. And so like that's very much, I think, part of why we're able to have other jobs and a shared label and our own personal label and our own personal life and still have free time. And like... But because it's folded into, our, it, it it has been folded into our jobs, it wouldn't be possible otherwise. If we and didn't so, have each
3: other, like oh, Meredith and I, <laughs> we, like, one, I don't know that you, like, I don't think that, like, I, this label would have been around. And also, if we didn't have each other, we wouldn't have a life outside of this. And yeah. they're just, it's just not possible. I see a lot of people start small businesses and that just kind of becomes... consuming consuming. yeah and there's i mean i don't know i think that we live pretty rich lives definitely not rich people (laughs) but we live pretty rich lives because of because of the partnership and the relationships that we have really been very fortunate to foster along the way Mm -hmm. Um, our our ownership here dan and sandy wilkins who own abbey road farm they're like, yeah, we want you to make your labels because the more, the more wine that you make, the more people you bring here. And they see evidence of that in their own tasting room where they're like, your enthusiasm for making wine for us and making wine for yourself brings people to this business. They don't look at it as a competition. They look at it as like, all boats rise with the tide, man. Like,
2: And the happier you are, the longer you're gonna stick around.
3: Oh, I've no, I'm never leaving. Here. Yeah, but Why like that's
2: huge. Here? Like, you know, employment retention is a really, yeah. is a thing that has a huge effect on companies. And so like having happy employees means you're gonna be there Yeah, long-term.
1: I'm curious. Uh, and This might be a different answer for your different label, but as you're as you're presenting your wine, and you talk a little bit about this with Statera, kind of the, the, the the range of reactions you get from from people drinking your wine. What's the ultimate reaction to someone drinking your wine? What's what's the, what's the best takeaway, best compliment, or best reaction someone could have to drinking one of your wines?
2: Um. So, like I had said earlier with the Chardonnay, to me, a really big compliment is someone that goes, I don't really like Chardonnays, but I really like this. Mm-hmm. Like, that's a really nice compliment to me. It feels genuine.
3: Yeah.
2: <laughs> um, a genuine compliment, because people are mostly nice. People aren't going to talk shit. They're just not going to buy your wine. They're going to walk away. And most people aren't assholes to your face. Um, but that's a gen- – like, that feels honest to me. And so, like, something that feels genuine is 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 the nicest compliment. You know, it's not always, like, who bought a case of wine. It's, like, it's who – uh, wants to have a conversation, who's like, the, the wine has turned something in their brain where they're going like, oh, I had never thought about this, or oh, I want to talk about this more or think about it more. And to me, that's the nicest compliment someone can have in drinking your wine, is that if it is really intriguing to them um, and opens some kind of window or door, you know, in some way.
3: Yeah, I think that's pretty spot on. Yeah.
1: What about for your, I'm curious, especially for your individual label, with the kind of this interesting things, you, you mentioned trying to kind of change people's perceptions of things they may know, or, or blends that they've never tried before, what kind of reactions do you get when people try your wines?
3: Um, kind of like, I guess what I really want, like if I could say like, this is what I'm hoping to manufacture, like what kind of responses it would be, would be like, reframing the way that people think about tasting wine in Oregon. Like just because most vineyards have a ton of Pinot planted and when you go out to most tastings you are gonna taste like a lot of Pinot Noir, I really wanna provide a way different kind of tasting experience. Like if you put all four or five of my hilarious wines out, like there's there might be some Pinot hiding in some of those. But that's definitely not what the story is and our sort of like adopting this grape as being the like official grape of this region was, you know, I don't know that it was the best choice for this region. Like we could have done, we could be planting quite a lot of other things here and be thriving. Pinot fetches a pretty high price per bottle, so I think there's definitely some economics that were driving, you know, why people planted what they did and. It seems to grow fine, but I mean, lots of Pinot Noir here loses its acid pretty quickly, and so a lot of places have to add acid. Or lots of Pinot, um, you know, struggles to like avoid like disease or mildew or like lots of things. And it's my hope is that by making some like unconventional stuff, that I just kind of provide a an experience for people that are looking for something else, like looking to try, like literally anything else. And um, I think, you know, working here at at the farm, we have uh, 43 acres planted here. And of those 43, only 11 acres of it is Pinot Noir. And when you do a, a flight here, Um, we only ever feature one Pinot on the flight. And that's, that is the kind of experience I would love to offer for my label as well. I I am gonna make a little bit of Pinot Noir this year, but it's gonna be blended with some other stuff. Um, And it's literally like to try to get, you know, some of our restaurant clients are like, we need like kind of a Pinot glass pour, like an inexpensive glass pour experience. And so I like, this is just purely anecdotal i was like all right fine i'll make like kind of a pinot blend type thing and um yeah that'll be that'll be coming out presumably in the spring of 2021 or sometime in the summer i don't know but it'll be like again like something really unconventional it'll be like pinot noir blended with like neuler turgal and who knows what else just well, again i i honestly don't know yet. It's, <laughs> That kind of stresses you out a little bit sometimes.
2: Hey, it's, it's your thing. It doesn't stress me out.
3: It's your thing. What did, what First
2: to that stresses me out. Yeah. I'm a bit more type A in this partnership yeah. than Lucas. And it's good that we have different personalities. Like yeah, in any partnership, true. it's good that we're different. I kind of
3: like going into harvest, like not really knowing everything, that I don't have like a full plan. I'm like, I know I'm buying X amount of fruit. I know I've got X amount of barrels.
2: I'm going to make it up along the way. We'll
3: figure it out later. Yeah.
1: Whatever falls in together
3: falls in together. Yeah, I mean, I like, I don't think that I've never made a wine yet that that hasn't been able to sell. So, like, that's that's kind of all the confidence I need, I guess. Like, if you can sell it, make whatever you want. Like, it doesn't really doesn't really matter, right? It's, that's ultimately the only thing that's binding anybody to making anything in particular is whether or not you can sell it, and that that comes down to a lot of different factors. It helps that neither one of us are making, like, a thousand cases of any one wine. I mean, the biggest production that we have for any one thing in particular is, like... A
2: couple hundred cases.
3: Like, have we made... Like, how much... What's the most amount of Synergy that we've ever made? 180 cases?
2: Yeah.
3: So that's very small, right? And Synergy is our, like, Willamette Valley blended wine. Um, Outside of that, we've made a lot of, like... 25k slots, 50k slots, 75k slots now seems kind of big to us. I know right? Um, 2020 is hands down going to be the most amount of wine that we will have made yet which feels a little weird being in the middle of a pandemic to be like why are you making more wine than you've ever made and it's it's in large part because now our wines are being sold at a tasting room here at Abbey Red Farm and also we I don't know how, but we opened up more state markets during all of this and those have been doing quite well. And we're kind of like, well, like we want to eventually have this be like our full-time job where our labels are how we make our paychecks, then we're not going to do that making 500 cases a year. So we eventually kind of have to start like growing like in bigger, bigger steps to make that happen for ourselves. There are certainly some, like... It's really odd to see, like, where those limitations fall, though. Um, like, the all of the different tariffs and whatnot that have been put on our industry have, like, really fucked things up. Uh, specifically, like, like, sparkling glass, for instance. Mm-hmm. Sparkling glass has gotten harder and harder to find. And it's just because, like... A lot of glass comes from China or France and those are two countries that have been heavily tariffed on goods like this and so trying to grow when you know there's limitations that literally have nothing to do with your with what you're doing um is a challenge so yeah we're we're at a very interesting time to be just human beings um I, I think that we're also, as we've grown, we're like kind of reassessing our values as a company as well. And so like, we had a pretty serious conversation recently about like, purchasing fruit from vineyards and wanting to know like, very specifically, how much are you paying the vineyard workers? And if we find a vineyard that we have been purchasing fruit from in the past and we don't like what that answer is, I think we're prepared to shrink a little bit to like only purchase fruit from vineyards that we think are going to match those values. And I like that feels really good initially when you but we haven't yet had to say to a vineyard like sorry we're not going to buy your fruit anymore because you don't pay your people enough. When we have to do that, like that's a different kind of conversation to have. But I, I really hope that as a lot of our friends with labels kind of, the, of this size and that are in this sort of like age group of like this new wave of winemakers here in Oregon are growing their labels and are able to do so in like more significant ways where we're making more and more of an impact on the industry here. I hope that more people start, that we all work together to make this a way more equitable industry than what it has been. Because like a lot of the story about winemaking in Oregon always comes from the winemaker's perspective. When like ultimately, like, we do very little compared to what it takes to get that wine actually made. And there's, that's, that's something that, that's like, I hope, becomes a broader part of the conversation that we have about what it takes to make wine here. Or around the world, really.
2: Yeah, I mean, lots of wine, lots of wineries, especially, like, in the natural wine world, want to talk about sustainability and their, you know, impact on the environment. Um,
3: and whether or not it's organic or biodynamic, but it's, like, does it does it really matter if the people growing And then grapes? we
2: miss the human component. That's, yeah. like, only a recent conversation, and, like, it's just starting to happen. It's just shameful,
3: really, that it's just a yeah, recent absolutely.
2: conversation. absolutely. And I'm ashamed that we weren't asking our growers five years ago. Yeah. Um... And I'm amazed at how many of them go, like, I don't know. I know what I pay the contract worker, but I don't know how much they pay their workers. And I'm like, can you find out? (laughs) Yeah. Because it matters to me, and it should matter to you. And if you've never thought about it, I hope that you would think about it. Um, And and on the flip side, I get other people that go, like... I know exactly what they're paid i actually yeah. like had a grower that was like they didn't have health insurance but with covid i've just given it to him and, and just eaten the cost and the, you know and and so you find some really intentional people and you find some people that are like well i know ne- you know I, I haven't thought about it mm-hmm. <laughs> i would like you to think about it <laughs> and i hope that everyone is asking their growers that because trust me if we're all asking um that's the only way things are going to change not this little tiny brand that makes a little bit um But if we're all asking... And, I mean, the hard part is when Luke and I had this conversation, it's like, well, what answer are we okay with? Mm -hmm. What's a living wage?
3: Yeah. And then to that end, you know, this kind of circles back to what we were saying about, like, pricing earlier. Like, sure, a $35 bottle of wine is, like, difficult to sell now. Like, what is that... How is the industry going to have to change? You know, if... How are we going to have people going to the grocery store and buying $6 bottles of wine. Like, how is that gonna work? Like the only way that wines like that get made are either being heavily mechanized or really taking advantage of human labor in, in like really kind of like really awful ways, you know? And this, to Meredith's point, this needs to become like a way bigger conversation in a way a bigger uh, part of how we talk about the wine industry as a whole. Because like what is the point of only purchasing from organic vineyards if the people that are growing that fruit have a hard time buying food? You know, like, like
2: missing the point. Missing the point. Like
3: in Oregon alone, and this is like just like a broad statistic, in Oregon alone, one in five children is food insecure. That means once a month they a child does not know whether or not they're going to get to eat that day. Which seems like a lot, right? So nationally, it's one in five. In Oregon, it's one in four. Like, that's a shitload of kids. That's a lot of kids. And it's certainly not very often the like, the, like family buying $35 bottles of wine whose kids worry about that. So, like, it's quite literally the people that are doing the actual work getting that wine there. And, and that that this is just now part of the conversation that we're having is shameful and that it's not something that is just kind of widely talked about worldwide as an industry is even worse. I mean, there's a reason why Malbec from Chile is 10 bucks a bottle. It's, 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 it's not cheap to ship it here. So how did it become $10 a bottle? You know, that's... That is like it means more and more to me to like get to the bottom of this and to have like meaningful solutions, not just like anecdotal, like, Oh, that's interesting kind of chats and then go back to doing the same things again and again, expecting different results.
2: I feel like it's just the start. I don't know where the end is, but it's the start of the conversation at least for us. Yeah. Um, I know that, like out at Bruce's, there's a family that has been helping him for 35 years, um, and he has, he gives them a raise every couple of years. And they're very part time; it's four acres, and so this is you know on the side. And so he doesn't give them health insurance and stuff, but he they're they're like family. It's the same family, you know. It's the parents and the kids that help, and it's the same people. Um, and I really think that's more the model rather than having. You know, migrant workers. If you have people that are there year after year and then they do such a better job because they're invested and they care because you're invested in them and you care about them and it's this two way street and so they get treated better and you get better quality work. And I don't know how to make that a model, you know, when you have 60 acres. It's way easier when you have four acres and they can just come after work and on the weekends and that's enough to get the job done. And so I don't know what the answer is. But I know that, like, it's possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have to work harder to figure it out. And that just means prioritizing brown people's lives. Like, it's really that simple, I think.
3: Very much so. <laughs>
2: um, and part of that priority means that you're going to pay more for that bottle of wine. And that's okay. Because the first answer you get from people is like, well, I have to be price competitive. Because if not, I'm out of business. Well, it's a really fucked
3: up way of looking at it. Yeah. Because that means that, like... For you to be price competitive like that means that racism isn't a deal breaker for you yeah you know what i mean which is like a really fucked up way of looking at it
2: well and so the long-term answer is and you have to change the laws and so that everybody is on the same playing field like agriculture workers should be given the same overtime rules and regulations um for their quality of work as all other workers in the united states and they're not and it's fucking racist bullshit in my opinion sorry to get all and so I mean that's the long term solution is if you make everyone on the same playing field and you just make it the law to pay people a living wage. Novel idea.
3: Um yeah, like literally then every there's time, no there's
2: no competition because then they're they're all getting paid. Every at labor law that brings same. up
3: over time always makes an exclusion for agricultural workers. Which why? And it's like, well, because like we gotta keep we gotta keep food cheap. It's like but
2: at the cost of what?
3: At the cost of what? At the, At cost, the cost of, of food. these people not eating. Yeah.
2: <laughs> like, how is that an answer?
3: Yeah, it's totally.
2: It's absurd, and racist is what it is. Yeah. Um, and so that's the long-term solution, and I don't know how to change politics other than voting and getting my voice out there. But I can change who the people that farm yeah. our grapes. You can and vote with your dollars.
3: We're gonna yeah. vote with the money that we spend on fruit
2: from our from our growers. Yeah. We have a long ways to go.
3: Boy, do we. Starting,
1: though, that's the important part. Starting. Yeah, starting. Yep. Attention. starting.
2: Yeah.
1: Yep. So tell me about uh, you, you talked a little bit about some of the changes you've seen in Oregon wine as a part of it. Tell me about sort of the biggest changes. What, what's most different now in the industry versus when you started? What are the biggest changes you've seen?
2: Um, at least in our little niche world, I see more consumers wanting more playful, fun, weird wine. Like, people are bored with Pinot. There's certainly a lot of people that are still excited about it, but I think young people, like people in our more immediate community, want to see like what else is possible i think five years ago it would be really hard to sell a willamette valley albarino and now like it'd go away in two seconds because mm-hmm. it's like oh something interesting and fun and playful and something i've never heard of and that's exciting yeah and so i think from at least you know i'm i'm sure this is not everyone's perspective but in in our space in the wine industry that certainly is a big change um and as winemakers, it's hard, because there's very few grapes out there. And so if you don't have like Abbey Road, your own estate vineyard where you can plant all these fun weird grapes, they're really hard to find. And there's lots of competition from small wineries wanting anything weird <laughs> and farmed organically.
3: Yeah. Um, I mean, you found it difficult to sell It's
2: Yeah, I find it difficult to sell Pino.
3: And um, I, I found with working for Tom and Kate at Division that Every single year, they're like, what are we going to do with all this single vineyard Pinot that we're making? Like, it became, the longer I was there, the more that they were like, this is becoming harder and harder. And every winery that I know of is like, yeah, Pinot's become, the market's just long. so yeah. saturated with it. And also, like, Flamette Valley Pinot Noir is an expensive, comparatively an expensive bottle of wine. And you can go to, like, a wine shop and buy a decent kind of bottle of cheap Burgundy and spend... $20 less, so like what's the, there's not really, there hasn't been this like real giant push to like buy American you know, unless it's like other weird fun stuff and and it's like, yeah, Pinot has become a harder and harder sell, that's what I've certainly noticed since I moved here um, and you know, also you're seeing when we first started here, there wasn't any like real California money that had like come up and purchased land or moving wineries up and starting to do uh, their winemaking here. And that like, that's certainly shifted how like some of these wineries look and feel. And it's less the kind of like bucolic farm country that happens to also be a wine region now and more of like, there's some really big serious wineries around. That are that are just a totally different look. Mm-hmm. Um, I lo- I'm seeing more of a push. I've seen more women in full-time winemaking jobs than when we first started here, um, which is great. And now, like, I'm seeing this kind of like wave of like Latinx uh, winery projects starting up and becoming successful and thriving, which is really exciting to watch as well. Because um, that directly speaks to what we're addressing, that it's like, as some of these families have been here long enough to have to, like had some equity and start their own brands. Like, it's really cool to sing like Alumbra, for instance, or Gonzales Wine Company. Like, these are really great labels that people should be drinking and that like, are definitely telling, like, a broader story about what the way that Willamette Valley looks. Um, but, yeah, I think, like, we're seeing more, lots more sparkling wine than what used to be here. It like, seems it's like myself. everybody's making <laughs> bubbles now. Everybody's making bubbles now. And if you're not, you're missing out, because it's a hell of a lot of fun. And
2: a lot of work. It's a lot of
3: work. But, I mean, it, it's put a company like... like radiant, you know, like Andrew and Lee, um, kind of in a position where they get to have this awesome business making sparkling wine for a bunch of people. And what they do is great. Um, I don't work with them here at the farm, but like we're both friends with Lee and and Andrew and it's been cool to see bubbles really take off in a big way. Uh, kind of, I don't know what else is really just seeing more people kind of like explore and play in ways.
2: Just a really positive thing.
3: Like Shahalem has a Trousseau right now. Do you know they're selling Trousseau to their tasting room? Yeah,
2: it's from Vineyard. Yeah, I know yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm aware. <laughs>
3: yes. Yeah. Um but still like that would have never uh-huh. been when we both worked for Shehalem, There's no way they would have never done anything like, oh we're gonna buy a Trousseau from omero Vineyard and see what happens. Like that would have like never happened, right? Fast forward five years and suddenly like why not add a skew like that? Like what's the worst that could happen? I haven't tried it. I I have not
2: either. I need to.
1: Well, as you as you look ahead, uh, actually, well, before I ask that, you, you talked about COVID, you talk about the pandemic, right, the reason you guys are so spread apart at our lovely table here. Uh, tell me about the the effects uh, of COVID on kind of your wine lives, uh, personal lives, obviously, as well, and and how how you sort of see the future going. What, what do you sort of see as you look at look ahead as we come out of the pandemic eventually?
2: Yeah, I mean, obviously. I think one of the biggest changes for the wine industry is the change in the restaurant industry. Like so much of wine is sold in restaurants, especially by the glass in restaurants. And so to have that essentially disappear as a huge change um, yeah. in the industry. I've actually been pleasantly surprised that our distributors are still managing to move a decent amount of wine. Obviously they're moving it more through wine shops and other avenues than they are through restaurants, but they're still managing. Obviously people are drinking wine during the pandemic. Um, Boy, are they. And so they're just getting it in a different place than they used to, um, which is great for wine shops. I think a lot of them are thriving right now, which is, you know, there's some silver linings for some people um, in the the COVID world. Um, Obviously, it's not going away anytime soon. And so having to, like, figure out how to manage in this new space rather than just wait for it to go away because i think if you wait for it to go away you're gonna have a serious problem with your business Mm -hmm. um and so just like just like always like just trying to be creative in what does that mean what can we do um and of course much of that is like collaborating with our distributors like what are you seeing what do you need how like what does it look like from where you are um and therefore we can think about what does it look like from where we are um, and so yeah I don't know what it specifically means looking forward other than things are going to be different no matter what even if we had a vaccine tomorrow which we obviously won't um, yeah. and I,
3: I always have loved you know like on the day that uh, the day that Donald Trump won the election in 2016, Barack Obama was watching the results with his staff, and they were all, like, pretty shocked and pretty, like, upset by this. And one of his staff members, Dan Pfeiffer, said, um, hey, you know, what do you, do you think this is, like, some sort of, like, racial backlash? And Barack said, like history doesn't move in a straight line but it always moves forward and this is definitely given us an opportunity to say like our kind of culture and the way that we like have framed our society has always been especially since like the spanish flu 1918 is so long ago you know it's over 100 years ago now like we were able to kind of like drown out how much that changed culture and society and I think that we don't really know yet like how much of a shift is going a permanent shift is going to happen or what what sort of impact this is going to have on restaurant culture on I mean even our like community culture like Burning Man's cancelled this year like like how does that change like that you can't go have a glass of wine and like dance in a sweaty basement at a club like how does that change, you know, the way that we're gonna do things? How does the sort of like revelry and like like bacchanalian, like celebratory nature of wine, like now that that is gone, in for the for the meantime anyway, like how is this gonna change the the way that we think about this as as like a product or as a thing that's just kind of part of the way that we go about our human existence? We just don't know yet. I mean, we're, what are we, like, six months into this? Like, five? five? We're just scratching the surface of what this is going to do. I mean, we're literally just, like, scratching the surface of this. We're just kind of, like, putting our heads down and getting to work and, like, just trying to make wine and make more of it. And we're kind of thinking about, like, okay, like, maybe we should be making some, like, cheaper SKUs. Cause that's like if everything's being sold out of, out of like a bottle shop like and people are kind of suffering like maybe you make things that are kind of like in that kind of realm that are a little bit more affordable um, but yeah I mean we just don't know I mean we're five months into this like the whole world is literally changing around us and everything is tumultuous how who's to say what five months from now it could look like all I really care about right now is what happens 80 days from now.
2: I mean, I think it certainly has obviously highlighted many injustices that have always been there and they've been highlighted. And so obviously I hope that things won't go back to normal, that we won't just go like, okay, now that there's a vaccine or now that it's safe to, you know, socially interact with people, that we can just go back to normal. And I hope that we take it both as individuals and as a broader like society to change things um i don't know if i have any confidence that that will happen but i have hope that it will happen um i know that i can change me personally i can't change the whole system but i can change me um yeah i don't know
1: what about as you look ahead for the Oregon wine industry? What, what do you see, pandemic, not pandemic, pandemic, just sort of looking ahead five, ten years, what's going to happen in Oregon wine? What's it going to look like?
2: Um, I think certainly the climate changing is going to be a real conversation, especially for, I don't know how it's not a conversation for everybody that are planting vineyards right now and going like, what, like, grapes are going to do well in a hotter climate than we've historically had um and i think that should be in i mean the climate's going to force the conversation eventually um be a serious conversation um i don't know in what way other than like people are going to have to be more creative in what what grapes are going to put in the ground and change some of their farming practices i mean we're largely a dry farmed area not everybody but a lot of people i hope that we can continue to do that um I think I think we will. I mean, obviously, yeah. if your vineyards established, then it's probably fine. If your if your roots are established, even with um, climate
3: change, we still get shitload more rain than many regions around the world get. We're seeing some shrinking, but I think the biggest issue has become like longer, hotter days, where like all those heat units like take away whatever you know accumulation of rainwater you would have had over the rainy season, and then you know we're seeing more like uh variance in weather as well like we had later rains this season that really like fucked flowering up and a lot of vineyards are going to have lower yields like s the gear vineyard yeah. has quite a lot yeah like, it's really low this year really low and so like we're going to see uh more like heat shock happening or like stress happening in vineyards that you know, are definitely, you know, if the vineyard is 25 years old and it's just now in the last couple of years having to deal with, like, some pretty significant heat stress, like, year over year over year, like, those are cumulative and it's... it can have an impact on the sort of... the... on the quality and what happens next. Mm -hmm. Um, I hope that we see... I hope that we just see, like kind of a broader shift in in just generally how we kind of look at doing business in a way. Um, it's, it is very like far enough r- removed from Portland that like we struggle to get a lot of people out here to kind of see what, what it looks like. And I just hope that we kind of see like a broader market <laughs> appeal to like capture new audiences because like everybody drinks wine everybody does even if it's even if you're not like a high-end wine drinker there's something out there that you're gonna like you know and i think oregon would do a better job of trying to like appeal to a more like varied audience and say not just like come on out it's gonna be entirely predictable you know like Shaking things up a little bit more has got to be part of the mix, otherwise I don't know how we're going to survive doing the same thing again and again and again. Yeah.
1: What about for the future for yourselves,
3: for Statera,
1: individual brands, and just kind of where you see yourself going forward?
2: Um, I mean, we hope to continue to grow. I mean, the long-term goal would be to be able to support ourselves and our families with our small businesses. Um, and so... But we still would like to maintain that we own it all, and without you know investors owning and influencing the decisions that we make, um, which means it goes slow, which is fine. And yeah. we're both like really have wonderful lives right now, and so there's no major rush. But as the kind of demand increases and sales go up, then we'll continue to grow um, in hopes that it will eventually be big enough to support us. Yeah, yeah.
3: I could see us growing to the point where we kind of like grow out of a space like this and say like, well, we maybe need to think about like having space. a space of our own. Yeah. And you know, a space of our own would look like a winery big enough to accommodate all of our labels and a little tasting room. And I don't have that sort of iner on itch that Meredith does to farm fruit all the time like I'm, I'm way too fancy for that <laughs> like, <laughs> Mer- Meredith is definitely like our hands in the dirt human and I like am not wired that way entirely so I don't have the like I don't have the like I think Statera's gonna have our own estate vineyard someday maybe, I mean, I don't know what that would look like I don't have a lot of aspirations to do that but I don't know maybe like who can say who can say it's very. Everything has been like up, upturned so much that it's like who knows what next year is going to look like. Tomorrow. Yeah. Tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? Like, I certainly don't. We just are going to, like I said earlier, just put our heads down, keep trying to make wine that that we like, and hopefully other people like, and hopefully that kind of leads people to find us and. Become part of this this community that we're making together through the wines that we're creating.
1: So all the questions that I have for the two of you. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover here today? Should we cover
2: that? I don't think so. Thank you so much for your yeah, time, Yeah,
1: I really
0: appreciate it. Thank right. you
1: so much. This was yeah. awesome. I really appreciate this, and uh, we'll go ahead and let you guys off the hook. Cool. Right on.
0: Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive Podcast. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archives students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.